I was thinking this past week about life and how oftentimes in life, your past experiences shape who you become. You think about maybe something that happened in your childhood, thinking something that's happened in your life and how it shapes who you are into the future. So, for example, for me, my dad, uh, my dad was legally blind when I was growing up, and so he couldn't really see. And I have these memories of my dad. He, he would put his chair in front of the TV, and he'd put the Mariners game on the TV. And he had the Mariners game on, and then he'd have a radio beside him. And he'd have the Mariners game on the radio. And I'm like, hey, Dad, you're blind. Why are you trying to watch the TV? Like, that doesn't work. And he said, well, uh, I love the Mariners, and I want to hear the commentators on the TV and on the radio. So he would sit, listen to the Mariners game with two different commentators on the TV and on the radio. And as a result of that, I've spent my adult life as a dreaded Seattle Mariners fan. It's been terrible. It's been forever since we were relevant, and yet I still come back to the Mariners. Year, it's got to be our year one of these years, right? Because of that childhood experience. I remember that day and, and how it just has impacted me, and it's changed who I've become. What does that look like for you? What is some experience you had maybe in your childhood, maybe uh, when you were a few years ago, that has impacted who you are now? I think about, I think about uh, one of my friends who grew up playing with Legos, played Legos into his childhood, into his teenage years, into his adult life, and now he builds stuff for a living. Like that just kind of, you see how that shapes. Maybe for you, you had a, a negative experience, something that was painful, and that has caused you then to uh, maybe seek to alleviate some of those problems when you got to adulthood. Uh, maybe some of your experiences caused you to uh, try and medicate in negative ways. We all can understand this idea that, that, that maybe previous experiences the impact who you become. And this is true in life as well as it is true in our faith. Because our faith experience should have an impact to who we are today, to who we're going to be tomorrow, to where we go in the future. Our faith impacts that and guides and shapes what our faith will look like tomorrow. This past two or three months, we've been looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. Actually, it's been four months we've been looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. And today, uh, today we're going to see the end of this letter. Paul wrote this letter to a church in the city of Corinth, a church that's probably similar to us uh, in our church in our day and age. And we're going to look in chapter 16, the end of the book today. And now I know some of you said, well, last week, last week we were in chapter 11, and now we're skipping forward to chapter 16. How did we do that? Well, in, in the fall of 2019, we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 when we did a series on the Holy Spirit. So if you missed those messages, Matt, I'd welcome you to go back and listen to those. They were wonderful. Uh, and then we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 a couple weeks ago around Easter time. And so we looked at those chapters. I would encourage you, you are welcome to go back and listen to some mediocre preaching online, restorationyakima.com. But that's what brings us today to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Again, as we think about the theme for this book, the theme of this book has been that the gospel, what Jesus did for us on the cross, is the core and the foundation for everything that we as Christians believe. It is, it is a foundation for everything we believe and everything we do. And the gospel is simply Christ's sacrifice in our place for our salvation, for our forgiveness of sin, and for our redemption. And this whole book has been that that gospel message has got to be the foundation of everything we do. 
And we've seen this throughout this letter. Paul has repeatedly said, listen, when the, the gospel is the core of who you are, the foundation of your faith, it impacts everything around you. It impacts what we view as being mature, maturity. It impacts how we argue and how we disagree with one another as Christians. It impacts marriage and sexuality. The gospel impacts our freedoms and our rights as Christians, things that we are lovingly and willingly to, uh, willing to surrender for the good of others. Uh, the gospel impacts how we view church, how we view the Holy Spirit, how we view worship. The gospel impacts all of these things to, to shape our faith. And now we come to the, the last chapter, the conclusion of Paul's letter. And honestly, you look at this chapter and you're kind of like, it's kind of, it's kind of a crummy little ending, right? You seem like there's all these like random things thrown in. Uh, do this and don't forget these people and, and I'm going to come and visit you. And, and it's just kind of like, it's kind of like you ever write a letter or an email and you're kind of like, oh yeah, I've got the meat in. Now I need to do this like concluding uh, paragraph that nothing really is said in there just so I can push send. But there is so much more in this chapter than just that. In fact, uh, as Paul has has repeatedly called the Corinthians and repeatedly called Restoration Church to center our lives on the gospel. This chapter reveals that when we actually do that, when we as a people of God, when we actually center our life around the gospel, that when we do that then together as a people of God, we become a gospel-shaped community. That when we actually do what Paul is calling us to do, to center our lives around the gospel, we as a people of God become a gospel-shaped community. And this chapter is going to give us a glimpse, characteristics of what it looks like to be a gospel-shaped community. And it's a good opportunity for us here at Restoration Church to wonder, listen, as Paul describes this community, does this look like us? Do these characteristics define how I relate to the church, how I relate to one another? So what does a gospel-shaped uh, community look like? Number one, first characteristic of a gospel-shaped community is, is it is a generous community. Here's what Paul says in verse 1. Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are to do as well. See, the situation was that the church was first established in Jerusalem. That's where the first church was. And out of that church, uh, uh, God's intention was that the church would spread across the region. And so churches were planted in Galatia and Corinth and all over the region out of that original church in Jerusalem. And now we see that the church, uh, there's churches that have planted all over the world, including right here at Restoration Church. We are a church plant based out of what initiated so many thousands of years ago in the, the beginning of the church. Now, Jerusalem, Slimmerd Yakima, was an agricultural community. Jerusalem was not a very wealthy city. It was an agricultural community. And Jerusalem dealt with a drought. There was a, a, a famine and a drought that happened in the region. And as a result... The church and the people were struggling financially. That makes sense. There's an there's a economic downturn. The people, the church, are struggling financially. And so what Paul does is Paul writes to the other churches in Galatia and Corinth and these other places and says, you have an opportunity. And not just an opportunity. As Christians, you have a privilege and a responsibility. As fellow Christians, you have a responsibility to help your brothers and sisters in need. So he implores them, Take up an offering to help those brothers and sisters in need. 
See, what happens is when, is when the gospel takes root in our life, when the gospel, when we truly allow the gospel to shape who we are as individuals, it results in our generosity towards the people of God and towards the mission of God. And see, here's, here's, something, here's something that is so true. How you view money is such a revealer of what you worship. Money and how you view money reveals what's going on inside of your heart. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, where your treasure is, where your money is, where your bank account is, there your heart will also be. And so the, 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 the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, is, is if we are not generous to the people of God, if we are not generous towards the mission of God, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is God really a priority? If we look at money and the last thing we think about is God, then we have to wonder how important is God in our life? In fact, Paul, as he writes to the churches to take up an offering for the church in Jerusalem, he gives some instructions as to what our generosity should look like. The first thing he says is our generosity should be consistent. This is what he says. Verse 2, on the first day of the week, set something aside, which implies that there's this regular, consistent pattern of setting something aside in order to contribute to the mission and to the people of God. Second thing he's going to say, our giving is everybody should participate. He said that. He said, each of you should set aside something. Every one of you should set aside something. doesn't matter if you've got little resource or a lot. We all have an ability to participate in, in giving and contributing to the mission and the purpose of God. And finally, he's going to say that our giving should be proportional. Again, each of you are to put aside something as he may prosper, as he has the ability to. That means that, that some people with limited finances, they're, gonna, they're not going to give as much as somebody who, has, somebody who is wealthier. Whatever your financial standing is, Paul employs you. Here's what it looks like for you to be generous, for you to have the gospel taken root in your life, is your giving becomes consistent. Your giving is something that everybody views as an opportunity to participate and is proportional to where we are financially. This is a characteristic of what it looks like for us to be a gospel-shaped community. That as the gospel takes root in our life, we are generous towards the people of God and towards the mission and the purposes of God. Second characteristic of a gospel-shaped community is there is a mutual care and concern for one another. You see that in verse, starting in verse 5. Paul says, I'll visit you after passing through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you and, and even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. See, Paul says, I don't want to just pass through and just see you in passing. He said, no, I actually want to spend time with you. I care about your relationship. I want to be with you. I want to spend the winter with you. I want to spend some time with you. And the Corinthians, in response, they said, you can help me on my journey. And so you see that between the Corinthians and Paul, there's this, there's this care. There's this concern, this love for one another. There's an enjoyment amongst the people of God. They enjoy being with one another. There's a relationship there. See, for Paul and the Corinthians, it wasn't just about coming to church. Their faith wasn't just about coming to church and listening to preaching and maybe singing a song. Their, church, their, their faith was so much important than that. It's more than just coming to church and then going back into normal life. When the gospel takes root in our life, 
we actually become a part of a people. We actually become a, a community. We become a family. That is what happens when the gospel takes root in our life. As a gospel-shaped community, we become a family where there's a mutual care and concern and enjoyment of one another. Man, I'm just challenged to consider, like, is that my heart towards the community? Is that my heart towards the church? This mutual care and concern, love, desire to see one another. I mean, Paul even talks about a few other friends of the church. He talks about Timothy and Apollos. In verse 10, he says, when Timothy comes, I want you to help put him at ease. Verse 12, and concerning Apollos, Apollos, he's not able to come to visit you now, but he will when he has an opportunity. See, as we, as we look to anchor our life on the gospel, we as a people of God recognize it's not just about knowledge. It's not just about coming and worshiping God and having these experience, experiences. We actually, as a people of God, should be drawn towards one another. We should be concerned with one another and have a, have a care for one another. And that's such just a challenge for us today, is how connected are you to the people of God? Are you loving and caring for the people that God has brought together? The first characteristic of a gospel-shaped community is it's a generous community. Second characteristic is there's this mutual care and concern for one another. Third characteristic of a gospel-shaped community is that we have an active faith. We have an active faith. You know, I was gathering with our elders this past week, and we were talking about uh, one of the things that I really hate in church. Because when you come to church, sometimes there's this temptation, and maybe you've experienced that. Sometimes you step into church, and you feel this temptation that you have to have it all together, right? Anybody ever felt that? Like you come into church, and people expect you to be perfect, and you're a perfect Christian. You have no problems. Anybody feel that pressure, or is that just me? I mean, oftentimes, this is what we do. We go into church, and we put on a facade, right? We put on a smile because we have to have everything all figured out, right? We can't let anyone know that maybe there's some issues in our marriage. Maybe there's some issues with our kids. And so we, we, we put on these facades where, where we, we look like we have it all together and we pretend that we're perfect. We've got the perfect marriage. Our kids are perfect. Our house, we'll clean it before you come so you don't see all the mess and all the stuff. We don't talk about our struggles we don't talk about sin, the sin we have in our life. And if we do, then it's in a very vague way. Well, sometimes I struggle. Or it's, well, I used to struggle with this. I don't struggle with this anymore. I know some of you may be better than me. But at least for me, man, I'm tired of the temptation to have to fake it. I'm tired of the temptation to try and live up to perfection. I'm done pursuing perfection. Because God's not looking for perfection. I think God's looking for progress. See, this idea of sanctification is that when we come to God, he gets in this process of redeeming us, of changing us. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifelong thing, which means every one of us in here, whether you're a new Christian, whether you've been a Christian a long time, there's this process that God is redeeming you. He's continuing to do it. And at some point when we get to eternity, he'll be done. But until then, God is still at work in our life. And so what, that's what God's looking for. He's looking for us to continually surrender to him, to allow him to continue to work on us. God wants growth from us. He wants us to take steps of faith one after another, and we keep moving forward. In fact, 
This is what Paul said in this passage. He acknowledges that when you are faithful to God, there's going to be opposition. He said in verse 9, he said, while the door is open for me for an effective work in the gospel, there are many adversaries. Paul's saying, hey, hey, there's opportunities for me. There's great things in front of me. But there's opposition. There's difficulty. And so this is what Paul says. Verse 13 says to the church, be watchful. Sing, stand alert. Keep your eyes open. There is opposition. It is real. And then he says, stand firm in the faith. What is the faith we're talking about? Faith in the gospel. Stand firm in the gospel. It's almost as if he knows that we have this tendency, even as Christians, where we know it's about grace and about what Jesus has done for us, but we have this idea as Christians that we revert back to our performance. Revert back to, I've got to look the part. We look back to my knowledge. We look back to following the rules. It's almost as if Paul knows that we struggle with those things. So he says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the gospel. And he says this, act like men. Be strong. Men, I would say to you, men, act like men. But I don't think Paul is just speaking to men here. I don't think he's trying to contrast masculinity and femininity. I think what he's saying is, is, is take courage. Don't continue to be a child. Be willing to mature. Be willing to take steps of faith. Be willing to, to grow. Grow out of childhood into adulthood. Don't remain immature, but take steps to keep growing your faith, to have this active faith. In fact, when you notice verse 13, you'll notice all these terms, they're all present tense. Every one of these things, be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong. They're all written in the present tense, which means Paul is saying for us each and every day, no matter what the day holds, no matter what challenges you're going to face, no matter what temptations uh, come before you, no matter what setbacks you deal with, Paul's saying, listen, listen, stand firm, be watchful, be courageous, be strong, stand firm in the faith. Come back to the grace of God. Something that we have to do every day. We come back to this and again and again and again. This is where I, I want you to hear, listen, God's not looking for your perfection. He's looking for progress. And what God wants us to do is to keep standing up, to keep taking courage, to keep coming back to, to the grace of God, to keep taking steps of faith, of walking with him, of surrendering towards him. And when we stumble... He wants us to get back up, to keep pursuing that growth. So we've got these characteristics of a gospel-shaped community. Number one, a generous community. Number two, there's a mutual love and concern amongst, the, amongst one another. Number three, there's an active faith. And the fourth characteristic of a gospel-shaped community is that everything is done in sacrificial love. He says it very clearly in verse 14. Let all be done in love. What he's saying is love is the basis for everything that we do. Every function, every action, everything we do should be touched and shaped and inf influenced by our love for one another. See, what happens is when we have experienced personally the, the, the sacrificial the incredible, the costly love of God. 
when we've experienced that love, when we stand firm in that love, stand firm in what Jesus has done for us, when we allow that love to be our foundation for how we live our life, what happens is naturally we begin to exhibit that love to those around us. When we are a people who are walking in the gospel, that that is the core of who we are, naturally that love flows out to the people around us. We can't contain it. It just is a part of, we exude it. Kind of like you ever, you ever eaten a bunch of garlic? You know what happens when you eat, eat a bunch of garlic? You just begin to smell like garlic. Listen, that's what happens with the love of God. When you, when you center yourself on the gospel, you can't help but just stink of the love of God towards the people around you. And then the question becomes, well, well how does that love play out? I'm glad you asked because Paul answers that question. Verse 15, he says, I urge you, brothers, you know the household of Stephanus, who was some of the first Christians in Achaia. They devoted themselves to the service of Christians. Again, you've got this family. You've got this family, one of the first Christians in the region. And you see that their life is marked by one of these key characteristics of our faith, a mutual love and concern for one another. This is a family that is constantly serving other people meeting the needs of other people. They're giving to other people. They're blessing other people. And what Paul says, verse 15, be subject to people like this, to fellow workers and laborers like this. See, our love, our love is displayed through our mutual subjection to one another. Subjection simply means that we respect, honor, and follow. No, I know we've got this freedom-loving society, right? We have a freedom-loving culture that loves our rights and loves our freedoms. We don't like the word subjection because that takes us out of the position of power and control. We don't like this idea of subjection because that calls into question our own comfort and our own approval that we determine we have every right to, to claim. But Paul is saying when the gospel takes root in our life, it results in love for one another. And that is displayed when we are subjected, willingly subject ourselves to godly leaders. Love is also played out in another way. It's also played out through recognition. Look at verse 17. Paul says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaicus. Those names you just read quickly to make it sound like you know what you're saying. That's the secret. Because they have been made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Here's the key. Give recognition to such people. See, when we are a gospel-centered people, we ought to look out for opportunities to recognize and honor and encourage those who are contributing to the kingdom of God. That becomes a part of what we do when we see somebody serving and engaging in the ministry of God. You recognize them. You honor them. You appreciate them. You encourage them. Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you, are you noticing the people that are sacrificing to make the church happen? The amount of work that takes to, to allow church and the mission of the, the church to move forward? In fact, we could probably spend hours recognizing people here at Restoration Church, but I chose to take 30 seconds to recognize a few people. In fact, I was thinking about this last week. This last week, we had a conversation on our setup and teardown team. 
And I'll just recognize Ron Pelson and Johnny Holland. These guys have been on the Set Up and Tear Down team for eight years. Eight years they come in at 7.30 to come get all of this set up. Like, that's tremendous. That is tremendous. That is such a sacrifice of, of so much time and effort, sleeping in and all those things. We ought to recognize those things. We ought to recognize those people. Thank you, Johnny and Ron. I think about my friend Isaiah Drost. Yeah. My friend Isaiah Drost, a new guy at the church. Man, he's jumped into that, coming at 7.30 to set up. I love it. I'm so thankful for those people. By the way, I didn't ask their permission for this, so I'm asking now. Thanks, guys. I have incredible gratitude right now for the Lockbeam family and the Calavig family. You know why? Because we made a decision a couple weeks ago, I guess it's been a couple months, to resume our kids' ministry. And we don't quite have like a full kids' ministry team yet. We don't have all the teachers in place. We don't have all the classes in place. And so it's kind of, it's just a lot of kids, a lot of different age groups. And I am so thankful for these two families who are committed to providing that ministry to families. They're committed to go back there and figure out how to love these kids and figure out how to try and, and keep these kids and create a safe environment. Some days it looks like this. Some days they get to the end of the day and they're like, yeah, we just, we're going to go home and nap for the next week. I'm thankful for that. Those are things we ought to recognize and say, man, thank you for sacrificing and, and being engaged in the kingdom of God. Do we recognize those who work on this regard to make the, the mission of God possible? This is what Paul says. This is, a, this is when we are a gospel people. These are the things that characterize how we come together. That there's a, a generosity amongst us. There's a mutual love and concern for one another. We, are, we have an active faith where it's okay to struggle, but it's not okay to stay there because we're taking steps to grow. And there's this opportunity for us to, to, recognize, to love one another through how we subject ourselves and how we recognize and honor one another. See, Paul is now at the end of this long book, this long letter, this challenging letter. Man, we've read this letter and there's been some really challenging things in it. Things that step on our toes, that make us a little bit uncomfortable because it challenges us. And he's saying, listen, listen, all of this is rooted that the gospel has got to be the center of your faith, the center of your church, the center of who you are, that influences every part of your life. And now Paul is saying at the end of the letter that when we do that, when we be a people that root ourselves in the gospel, that this creates a gospel-centered community around us, that we become a gospel-shaped culture characterized by generosity, mutual concern, an active faith, and love. In fact, I was thinking about this. I was thinking 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I stood in the altar at a, at a church, and I stood in front of this curly-haired girl, this most beautiful girl I ever saw, had a great smile. And I stood before her, and I, and I made this promise. I said, I, I take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and health, to love and cherish till death do us part. I remember making that promise to her. Now, one of the things, when I made that promise to her, I also got some other stuff with it. 
I got a mother-in-law and a father-in-law and a couple sister-in-laws and some crazy brother-in-laws. Like it was kind of this package deal where, where I made this commitment to Samantha and all of a sudden I have this family around me. And I became a part of this family. That is what happens in our faith. That when we place our faith in Christ, we become a part of something bigger. And yes, yes, our faith is personal. Our faith is just between us and God. But when we, when we become a Christian, when we make Christ our Savior, we become a part of the family of God. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian off on their own doing their own thing. When we place our faith in Christ as our Savior, we become a part of the family of God. It's a package deal. The family of God is not perfect. It's messy. It's made up of sinners. Sinners like me. You got a sinner leading the church. It's made up of sinners. It's not perfect. But I'll be honest, our team here at Restoration... Our leadership team, our staff team, now we are doing everything we can to try and, and lead our church to be a gospel-shaped community. That we as a people would love God and love others the way God has called us to. So simply, here's our application this morning. I'm asking you, would you jump in with us? Would you jump in with both feet to be a part of this family of God to help us build and shape this church to continue to become a gospel-shaped community. Which means that when you come to Restoration Church, I don't want you to come for the mediocre Bible teaching you're going to get out of me. That's not why I want you to come. I don't want you to come. My goal is not that you'd have some new knowledge. My goal is not that you'd come and have an experience and be able to worship God and sing some songs and then go on your merry way and keep going through your life. My goal is that when you come here that you'd be shaped into a gospel-shaped community, that we would be that type of community, that God would, would, would use us to draw our city to him. That God would use us being a gospel-shaped community to draw people to himself. So that the people around us, our city would look and say, man, there's something different about that church. Something different about how they love one another. How they're generous to one another. How they're not trying to be perfect. How they love one another. And people would say, I want some of that. That's the way it works. Is as we be this gospel-shaped community, others would be drawn into this that other lives would be changed that sinners would be redeemed that the broken would be healed and captives would be set free so would you jump in with us would you jump in with us through generosity you know we say this often our giving here at restoration church it's not about trying to build our name it's not about trying to build the name of restoration church it's all about the kingdom of god wanting to take the resources that are given to be invested into the kingdom of God, whether it is here locally, here amongst our body, or across the world through the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. Would you jump in with us to have this mutual care and concern for one another? Which means, would you invest relationally with one another? Let's just acknowledge this last year has been awkward. It's been challenging. It's been difficult. 
And so we recognize that. So we've tried to set our summer up to provide some opportunities to re-engage relationships through our dinner groups, through our different things we have going on. Would you jump into those? These are low-level, low-risk things. Come and have dinner with somebody else and begin to invest relationally with one another. We need you. Would you jump in with us to having an active faith? Which means here at Restoration Church, I don't want you to pretend to have the perfect little life. I want you to be real with where you are. And I want you to look, what is my next step of faith? What is the next step I need to take to follow God, to allow him to continue to redeem? And when you stumble and fall, man, there's a church who loves you, who will walk with you, will help you get back up and keep pursuing And would you jump in with one another and jump in with us to love one another, to honor one another, to to recognize one another? You know, the key to this whole thing, to us being a gospel-shaped community, the key to this is that we as individuals be gospel-centered people, which means I'm not talking to you about being a religious person. I'm not talking to you uh, about being a spiritual person. I'm not talking about, well, I've grown up in the church. Of course, of course, that's me. Well, my parents have a faith in the gospel. My my spouse has a faith in the gospel. No, no, each one of us have got to decide to be a gospel-centered person. We've got to personally receive the gospel and anchor our life on that truth. So simply, I want to give you that invitation today, the invitation to receive the gospel The gospel simply is good news. It is good news for those who have blown it. It is good news for everybody who gets it wrong on a regular basis. It is good news for those who say the wrong thing, who do the wrong thing, who've made a mess of their life. It is good news for those who've made a mess of their family, who've made a mess of their workplace, who've made a mess of their grades and their school. It is good news. Good news not for the goody two-shoes, good news for the perfect people. No, it is good news for sinners like me. Good news for sinners like you. The good news of the gospel is not that you need to try harder. It's not that you need to be a good person. It's not that you need to obey all the rules or or, or turn over a new leaf and just make things better. The good news is that Jesus lived a perfect life, the one that you and I couldn't. The good news is that Jesus went to the cross and he paid our debt to sin, which means he died for every lie, for every lustful thought, for every angry outburst. He died for every one of our sins. And on the cross, the good news is that he exchanges our sin for his sinfulness. So that when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sinfulness, he sees the perfection of Jesus that your debt to sin has been paid, that you can be made right with God. The good news is that Jesus rose from the grave, conquering Satan and sin and death and hell so that we no longer have to be defined by shame and by our failure and by our sin and by our screw-ups. The good news is that we become a new creation, that we become a child of God. The good news is that God sent the Holy Spirit 
to give us the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. As we talk about being a gospel-shaped community, I want to ask you, have you centered your life on the gospel? Have you received that good news? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Would you allow that good news to be the filter for how you view your life, how you view the world, how you view your faith? This is what Paul has been telling us for for 16 chapters. To be a people that center our life around the gospel. And when we do that, we become a gospel-shaped community. So now I want to encourage you, if you've never received Christ as your Savior, maybe today's that day for you. Encourage you to spend some time between you and the Lord. We'd love to talk with you about that. How you can receive the gospel. Become a child of God. Jake and I will be in the lobby after service today. Love for you to come and say, hey, I'm ready. I'm ready to receive that gospel. And I'm excited for what happens as a church. When we center our lives around that. But what God can do in us through us. Yes,